Welcome to Employee of the Month. Here's your host, Katie Lazarus. Welcome back to the Employee of the Month show. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and in this episode, I sat down with Gail Collins. In 1995, Gail joined the New York Times editorial board, and she went on to become the first female editor of the editorial page. In 2007, she made what some might consider a lateral move by becoming an opinion columnist at the New York Times. You can get her columns twice a week. She also does a blog with David Brooks. And if you thought that this job was just dreamy, I can't articulate how dreamy it is to go into her beautiful windowed offices uh, in the New York Times building, although she did tell me that many of the uh, other columnists can write from home if they prefer. I don't know if that's in Bermuda or Paris or New York, but it was a pleasure to also learn just how freeing it must be to not have to worry about how many people are tweeting about your piece or how many people are your fans on Facebook. She doesn't need to worry about any of those things. She does need to be factually correct, and luckily she has a fact checker to help her, which is not the case I found out, for reporters in the New York Times. Our interview is fascinating. Hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Yeah, they get free massages. Isn't that bananas? I know. I'm really jealous. Thank you so much for being on Employee of the Month. I'm so honored. My gosh. (laughs) Who knew? My mother had always dreamed of a day like this. Um, in a New York Magazine profile, Emily Nussbaum, who is also an employee. I love Emily Nussbaum. That's wonderful. She's brilliant. She really is. Um, but I do. Want and we to share a voice. passion about Buffy the Vampire Slayer over the years. Well, she also shares a similar. Um, I don't want to say aesthetic, but a similar. She's very funny and very thorough in, a, in an academic way. I would say that that her writing is quite similar to yours, and she's uh, lent an air of uh, intelligence to a medium that sometimes has it in droves now and sometimes does not. But I was bringing Emily Nussbaum up because she stated that you're a born policy wonk, but that you learn to write funny. And I thought that that was an odd (laughs) twist. (laughs) Can you illuminate me on that? Yeah, you know, once years ago, some magazine, it was like Vanity Fair, but it wasn't Vanity Fair, called me and said they wanted to know why... Maureen Dowd and I were the two columnists who used humor, and they wanted very clearly for me to say, because we are women and we have to deflect anger or something like that. But when I started, I was covering the Connecticut State Legislature. Yes. And how the heck do you get people to read about the Connecticut (laughs) State Legislature? I mean, you really, we would sit, Trish Hall, who's the op editor, and I worked together. We had a news service there. We would sit there every night and think, how can we get them excited about the guaranteed tax-based legislation? And we would do quizzes, and we would do poems, and we would do all this stuff. And really, humor was the only thing that worked. So that's how I got into it, really. So that's a great segue to my next question. I would say that reporters probably aren't capitalists just because of the nature of the pay. I mean, you can't be, or you can be too much of one. <laughs> how did you, you know, go into a business, essentially, by starting this Connecticut State News Bureau as a, as a from a business side? Reporting, I yeah. understand, you know, working for a news service, but... Well, it was a time much like the present time. There were no jobs out there. And um, I had gone to Connecticut because my husband had gotten a job in Connecticut. And then and I, he's a reporter also? Yeah. He was gone to work for the Ansonia Evening Sentinel, uh, which is no more, I'm sorry to say. But uh, And then I got a job with a little paper down in Fairfield Wait, County. Wait, there's a paper littler than the Ansonia? Oh, much littler, <laughs> yes. This was a startup, a new paper. It started up in, in, in Westport, you know, in Fairfield County, a very snazzy area, because there had been this huge fight about 
whether to bring a small number of minority kids from Bridgeport into the Westport public school system to, you know, expand their opportunities anyway. Because the state has the uh, greatest disparity between wealth and poverty, right? It has one of them. It's it, Bridgeport is especially sad state. I mean, in general, it always was, it still is. But um, so I was working for this paper, and they sent me to cover the state capitol because one of their they had started to be this great new startup full of progressive thought and stuff in Westport. And one of their thoughts was that nobody in that area knew they were living in Connecticut. They all thought they were in New York, politically speaking. So I was going to go up and learn about the legislature and tell them about the legislature. It was going to be fascinating. And I really got into it, and then instantly the paper laid everybody off because they had money problems, and I couldn't find another job. So I went to all the little papers in the state, and I said, for like $10 a week, I will tell you what your local legislators are doing. And that's how I got started. I had like 36 papers by the end, and some of them were dailies paying more than $10 a week. So, um, How did you know how to raise capital, or that was the capital? That was the capital. That yeah. was it. It was me. First, it was just me and a typewriter, and I would... But that's $360. Well, but then I, I raised my fees after a while, but still, that was $360. <laughs> that was my salary. That's all I had. And... Um, and I would sneak into the Senate duplicating room at night and duplicate whatever I'd written and, and send it off to all the little papers and stuff. And then when I got more and I got five or six dailies, then Trish came on as my partner and the two How of us. How had you guys met? My husband had moved to the New Haven Register and she was working for the daily, the morning paper in New Haven. And there were all kinds of fights and there's a woman's suit and she was in the woman's suit and there was a union effort and she was in the union effort and she just decided one day this was probably not where she was going to be promoted to uh, high ranks you know as her effort at suing them for various things had been going so she just came by and said I heard you're looking for somebody and it was God it was just wonderful I and mean, she's fantastic and amazing so we would just do that and we would work like 80 hours a week, because each of these papers wanted their own special things about their own legislatures. Nobody wanted general stories. And so did you divide it up? Yeah, she had the state senate the and I had the state house. And you would leave all these holes, you know, you would write a story that said, the senate today passed, da da da, and then it'd be a blank. And then you'd Xerox it, and then you'd type in, state senator Joseph Lieberman voted against it, or whatever it was. Uh, and we did a lot of that, but we were, I was writing some days I would easily write 20 stories. And the great thing about it was, after a while, it completely broke down the barrier in my mind between writing and talking. Mm. And I could write a simple-minded you know, story as fast as I could talk. And that was such a blessing, because it's like skating or something. Once you no longer have to think about staying upright, then you could do little tricks and stuff. So that's, I mean, I, I, I'm... I'm a really fast writer, and that's just been a blessing, a triple, triple blessing. And when you say that, you mean not just words per minute? No. I mean, I just, you're able to process right. and, and write down the, the analytical response to whatever the issue is. Yeah, I can write really pretty damn fast, and that's been a huge blessing all along. Cause I, I don't, I don't, I'm not usually in pain when I write. I usually enjoy it. I don't usually feel misery and that is really interesting. Joyce Carol Oates, there's like a video on the New Yorker's website right now, and she clearly talks about enjoying the process of sitting down. And yeah. you, you feel the same way. I do, yeah. It's very relaxing, usually. Yeah, that is not full of anguish, that is something There's no anguish, to. yeah. Yeah, no, it's fun, and I like doing it. And um, 
I like politics, and I, you know, when I was at, I, I was a columnist at um, the Daily News and Newsday before mm -hmm. I came here, and at some place along the line, I said to myself, I don't want people to get up in the morning and read whatever I write and then want to throw themselves out the window because things are so terrible. I want to find some way to write that will make people want to read about these frequently boring issues. Have you seen a tangible impact of your work on, on anyone? All the times I would tell you that happened there were very small bore. There was a time at the Daily News when I personally was responsible for saving a large number of maple trees in the Bronx, but that's not probably not where you're going. Well, but it's something. Yeah, it was something, yeah, I worked <laughs> for the trees. But um, it, it, I, I sort of think if I have a mission at all, it's just to get people interested in what's going on. and to do it in a way that makes them feel not depressed. And so, you know, if I can write about, when I was at the Daily News, I think I made it my mission to write about the Charter Revision Commission in a way that would make people want to read about Charter Revision. This is not in terms of schools. No, this was the, this, the city charter. It, I mean, really, it, there's no, everybody has Charter Revision sometime in their lives, wherever they're living, and nobody ever wants to hear about it. It's the most boring thing in the entire universe. Um, and there was somebody who was on the Charter Revision Commission who even today, when I see them, starts to laugh about how funny I was about Charter Revision. I don't think I was that funny about Charter Revision, but I well, was... the bar has been set pretty the low. The bar it's was not, very low, and I feel I was mildly amusing about Charter Revision, which was a step forward. And, you know, last week I wrote about the Farm Bill, and it took really yes. a long time because I was trying to think, you know, because you know now, especially, it used to be not so bad when it was just the newspaper, but now... At least I'm keenly aware that you can lose a reader in like three words. Just if they get bored, if it's three boring words one after the other, they'll go play a game or read their email or something. So Do you working on the farm bill so people will not stop reading it is a huge task, actually. And let's take that op-ed piece, for example. So that that's something that I, as a general reader, can uh, digest and also understand what's going on in the farm bill. And it, do you tend to write for the quote-unquote general reader? Do you write for peers who are going to want a more nuanced uh, and more, in I don't know, you know, in-depth? Yeah, I always write for the general. I write for general readers who are interested in politics. I, I don't think there are many people who will stick with the farm bill, no matter how amusing you're being, if they're not really interested. But I write for like the people I imagine myself talking to are like the sincere people who want to be good citizens and who would be happier thinking they knew about the Farm Bill if it wasn't a real lift to know about the Farm Bill or, you know, who would like to know about stuff and just feel better knowing about stuff, but um, who aren't insiders, who aren't, you know, part of the inside You're not trade. writing for your peers in that sense. No, okay, no, you're writing for no, me. no, 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 yeah, my, yes, I like that, <laughs> that'd be nice, thank you. Um, in 95, you joined the editorial board here. Yeah. Was it proposed to you? Was there a job opening? There was an opening. Um, it was Joyce Pernick who had done their local stuff for them, uh, had moved on, I think, I forget where she went, maybe downstairs, maybe she left. But um, she she was leaving anyway, and um, I was writing exclusively about state and local stuff for Newsday, my column there, and Hal Raines, who was the editor, called me up and asked me if I wanted a job. And I called Bob Herbert, who was mm -hmm. a columnist here, who had been with me at the Daily News, and um, who was my only person I knew on the editorial side, and I, I had a drink with him, and I said, what do you think? And he said, 
I don't know, every day I sit there and I look out the window and like the the sultan of some country is coming by to visit the editorial board. It appears to me to be a very serious thing to be doing. You ought to do it. Plus, I was working for New York Newsday and they were about to go bankrupt. So um, that was also an incentive. Now, when you joined, as when you became the head, though, in August 2001, you came on right before September 11th and simu not simultaneously, but uh, during your tenure, the New York Times itself was having so many internal uh, challenges. I sort of liken it in my mind to Obama when The Onion wrote that funny headline that a black man inherits worst job in America. <laughs> Did the job feel that way? No, it was uh, the the very beginning was traumatic because I had gone when I had taken the job. I mean, I had wondered if it was something that I was really. I was very. You know, Hal, when he first mentioned it to me, said, "Look." There are not that many first women ever jobs left, unless you're planning on becoming baseball commissioner. This may be your only shot. And I thought about it. I thought, wow, this would be so cool. Then I thought, I don't know anything about foreign affairs, relatively speaking. I'm not sure I should do this. And then I thought, well, nothing's going on in foreign affairs right now. I'll have some time to catch up once I get on board. And then a month later, you know, we had September 11th. But the great thing was the board is so deep there were like two or three other people on the board who had covered wars in Afghanistan. There was just so many people who knew so much stuff. So it was not the disaster that it would have been if it had been a more lightly staffed board with fewer experts. How would you articulate the voice of the editorial board? It, it, it feels, as a reader, almost to be this, uh, like Harvard stating this is this is the way it is. This is the facts. These are the facts. Yeah, that was that sort of came about. Um, there was a tendency back. That was a terrible analogy, but I guess I, I meant to mean. say that that it, it has uh, <laughs> gravitas, both both valid and also sort of self-centered. Well, it's gravitas, and it has a sense of the solidity of its opinions. Thank you. But the the. the there had been a long period, I don't know, in which the, the tendency was to say, well, on the one hand, people who believe this way feel this way. On the other hand, people who believe. And we're looking at it in both ways have decided that this way is the better way to go. And when, when Hal Raines took over, he basically said, look, this is the editorial page. We don't have to do that. Let's just tell them what we think and be really forceful about it. And he really changed the tone of the pieces and made them a lot punchier than they had been before. But when you're writing them, the, the whole you're you're always educated by the canon of the thought of the editorial pages, and you're, whatever you're writing is supposed to be part of a long line of editorials written on the editorial page going back a hundred odd years. And if you change an opinion, you are supposed to tell the readers, you know, this is why we've changed our like opinion. on Iraq. We didn't change our opinion on Iraq. We, we waited a long time, and we went back and forth on Iraq because we were worried about the weapons of mass destruction. We were worried. Um, and I, it, later on, when we were all revisiting what had happened and why things had gone wrong, my contribution was to write that I had not paid enough attention to the science experts who were talking about signs that there are or are not atomic weapons, and I had paid too much attention to the political experts who were telling me why there were atomic weapons. But in the end, we were against intervention. But you're one of the very few people who were, who were well-known, respected, and were outspoken about not changing your mind, perhaps, but, but growing, in your opinion. Yeah, you would have to be an idiot not to 
admit that if you were me. Um, I, I learned so much doing those pages. And that first period was so hard because everybody was so scared. It was such an intense period and nobody knew what to do and we were frightened and, you know, the whole atomic nuclear weapon thing was, you know, in everybody's minds. And um, Does it function like a jury? I mean, are there times where you, you have an opinion and you can't state it because everyone else feels one way? Or No, the great thing about the editorial board is in the end the editor decides. Um, even if all the board members just don't agree. But, I mean, you'd have to be a crazy editor not to be really, really moved by the fact that everybody else feels a different way. Uh, that almost never, I can't think of a time that ever happened. But, I mean, there would be times when there'd be disagreement, and you, at the end, you're the one that has to figure out where to go. When you decided, what prompted you to decide to leave, actually? I always knew I was going to go back to being a columnist. That was always my plan. Always, always, always. And then after about five or six years, I guess, um, you know, Arthur Salzberger and I had dinner, and I told him that I wanted to go back to being a columnist. And I needed a book leave anyway to finish the book I was writing, so it just all seemed to go and fall into place, and Andy Rosenthal, who was my deputy, we immediately agreed would be the person. And then we had this very nice dinner with Andy in which he thought we were forget what we said. We were celebrating my sixth anniversary. That was it. And then we sort of turned on him and threw the whole thing on him, <laughs> and then off we went. So, um, yeah, so it all worked out really well. Is there, you've, you've been a columnist at Newsday, The Daily News, New York Times. Is there um, one place where you felt more free to write versus another? No, all of them treat their columnists the same way, basically, which, which is? is that you just leave them alone and don't ever talk to them. Um, I mean, you say hi to <laughs> the corridors, but on all of them, but don't I was, make eye contact. Yeah, I was never. I was always edited just by a copy editor, never by an editor. Editor uh, on the Daily News, I actually did have an editor for a while, and that was great. But uh, not normally. You normally, and they don't ask you what you're going to write about, and they don't suggest that you shouldn't write about this or that. The only exception to that was when I was at the Daily News. They once called me back from vacation because Donald Trump was getting a divorce. I swear to you. Which one? Which divorce? The which first vacation? one. <laughs> the first the first Donald Trump divorce. And they felt that it was a moment too crucial for me to be just off in the country and I had to come back and write. Did that prompt you to want to write for a more serious paper? No, I loved it. I mean, I have a long history now with Donald Trump and it's always been a very rewarding one on my part. I have a thing in my house in the country that he sent me. I was at Newsday, I think, and I forget, oh, I called him, it was when he was having a lot of financial troubles, and I called him America's most famous thousandaire, and he got very angry, and he sent me a copy of the column with written all over it, attacks, you know, the face of a dog, no wonder you are so mean, and he misspelled too, uh, which should have been T-O-O, -O, but it was T-O, but um, my husband was so thrilled by this, he framed it, and we've got it someplace in the country now. And, um, you know, it just sort of gone on. I, he and I seem to cross paths about every 10 years, one way or the other. Has he ever done anything like, you know, given you a free week at one of his hotels or something to assuage you? Have you ever... No, no, although one time he did come here for um, a lunch, you know, with the publisher and the editorial board, and he was very charming. I mean, he, he has that side of him. It's just that it doesn't come up much in my own personal interactions. You don't want him at the hairdressers, for example. No, no. <laughs> um, it seems really cushy 
to be a columnist and a beautiful author. Oh my gosh, it's the best job <laughs> in the world. I mean, really. You know, you can do any, write about anything you want to write about. You can call and many, many people will take your calls. Uh, I have a researcher that I share with Frank Bruni who, you know, looks up facts for me. But that's also interesting because New York Times reporters, you know, they have to be their own fact checkers. Yeah, the regular reporters have to be their fact checkers. They don't they, they're a little more careful with us. They, the opinion people, I think partly because we are the opinion people, it's even more important that we make sure that... But it's nice for you because... Oh, it's you know, great for me. Oh, my Lord, it's relief. the best thing in the world. <laughs> it's fantastic. You know, Isabella's there, you know, every day, you know, sort of catching us. And uh, we also have great copy editors. And, uh, you know, we can, you know, do go anywhere that we think appropriate and, you know... Nick Kristoff is down the hall. Nick Kristoff is always in someplace terrible. The Times is always happy to send him. And when I was editor, I would get his expenses, and it would always be like airfare to a place I'd never heard of, $10,000. $10, hotel room, $2.47. <laughs> do, do columnists make six digits? Do they make five digits? They make good digits, you know. I, I don't actually know what they all make now, to tell you the truth. Would you say less than seven? I don't, I don't know going anywhere near this question, ever, ever, ever. Um, you've written six books. Are you, are you mulling over a seventh? I am, but I'm not going to talk about it until I give the publisher the proposal, which I have been too lazy to do this summer so far, but soon I will do that. I like the idea of you considering yourself lazy. Yeah, I've been really in a lazy mode lately. What is lazy for you? I just do the column. So, so, okay, but and you know you're being tongue-in-cheek, correct? No, no, I usually, most of my working life I've been writing a book and doing the column. How come you do, do both? Does the column not feel long-form enough? It doesn't feel like you get to go in-depth enough into a certain subject area? No, it's not, I mean, I just like doing both things, I, basically. Um, the column, I really enjoy writing the column. I have a good time doing it most of the time. So it's not like I've got this great burden I'm carrying, you know, every day. So, you know, it's We've good. We've spoken about that, how Joyce Carol Oates has mentioned that she really enjoys sitting down to write. I was curious what you were, just logistically, like how you spend your day, particularly like dealing with readers writing in and Twitter and all of these other things. Yeah, I don't Twitter, and I must admit, I've got tweet. to learn, I don't tweet. I think we call it Twitter here. I think we do have a rule about that. I'm I sorry. see. You can't I mean, say tweet? We don't tweet. We Twitter. Honest to God, <laughs> but I don't do it. Uh, I, I should learn to read them. Was but there a I don't. memo in a meeting about that? There was. A, there, we have a style guy who writes these things once in a while okay. and says this thing, and that they usually tell the copy editors who then tell us. Okay, I'm honest. But but back to the the real issue of, of of how you spend your day and your week. Yeah, I come here four or five days a week. I like to work in the office. Some of the columnists don't come in, don't have an office. I mean, they just. But you can do whatever you want to do. Again, great job. Really, really good job. But I find that all the sort of signs and incentives that you're supposed to be working are here, so it's good to go here and do it. And if I'm at home, I tend to clean the closets and things. Yeah, and there's people, I might, you know, that the editorial board has all got their offices over there. If there's any question about anything in the entire universe, there's probably somebody along that wall who has written an editorial about it at one point in time or another. So it's an incredible resource you know, to go and talk to people. How many hours a day do you spend writing? Writing per se? Well, when I'm only writing the column, I generally write it on Wednesdays. So it would be like eight hours. 
Just Wednesdays. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm around the rest of the time. I'm asking people about stuff. I'm talking to people. I'm reading stuff. So it's not like I just sort of wandered in from the field. And then, you know. Do you outline them before? No. The challenge is to figure out what I'm going to write about and kind of think of an angle and look for interesting anecdotes and stuff like that. But it's um, I have confidence that I will write it. So I'm not, like, in a panic about it. Do you read other columnists? Oh, sure. Who? Well, I read all of ours all the time, every day. I read the opinion page. And um, I read, um, I, I really like Ta-Nehisi Coates uh-huh. in The Atlantic. I think he is just great. I think he is really, 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 do you, really Do you good. read uh, old school and, uh, you know, magazine or do you do you read online? I read online. I've really broken down. I thought I would never do that, but I read everything online now. It's really sad, but I do. I've pretty much eliminated. I also listen to a lot of things. You can donate your subscription, though, ah. to a public school. <laughs> Is that true? At least for the New York Times. Well, see, I get it free, so it doesn't count. It's one of the many perks. The other perks are what? Uh, being at the New York Times? Oh, yeah. my God. You know, we have this... I mean, first of all, to work for the New York Times is just, I, you know... I'm grateful every day. I'm so proud of this place. Uh, when, you know, when we were at the, when I was at the other papers, um, they were great to me, and I had wonderful times at all of them. But you did sort of have the feeling sometimes that the columnists were expected to keep the ship afloat. You know that mm-hmm. that people New York Newsday would continue to exist because Jim Dwyer was there, you know, and I was there, and stuff like that. Rather than here, you know, you're just, you know. We will come and go. This institution will go on forever. It's just, it's, it's an amazing place to work. What's interesting for the columnists is that growing old is okay. I mean, it seems almost like tenure where you can be here for however long. Whereas in other professions, and I would say in journalism, being young is really important and having the technological savvy and the skills of being able to be a producer as well as a reporter now. Oh, yeah, and, and just to having sort of the insights that, you know, come with, you know, coming in. Because the culture has changed so much. It's a huge, big deal. I mean, basically, with our jobs here, you're as good as until you get boring, um, then you leave. Um, but it it certainly is an advantage if you happen to be getting really old <laughs> to have this place to go to. The boring pressure, though, of, of having something new to say, something that's mm-hmm. going to be exciting to you as well as your readers, that is a genuine pressure. That's a lot of pressure. And also, I don't think about it much, but whenever I've, I've taught, and I think about it a lot, and I talk about it a lot, that it used to be you would lose a reader if when it was a newspaper, newspaper, in a couple of paragraphs, if you got boring, they would just be off someplace else. But now it's like three words. You have to be really conscious that every word is moving you along and that there's not one boring sentence because one boring sentence and they're playing Angry Birds or right. reading their email or something. Or taking advantage of the free massages that the New York Times sometimes offers. <laughs> the New York Times does sometimes offer free massages, it's true. Fail to take advantage of, but I will if you need. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to know if there are any uh, constraints you feel writing-wise, things you don't write because it's for the New York Times that you might write in your book, for example? Are there things that you... I don't think so. Um, no, I think almost everything I've written in a book, I've written here, too. Uh, it, I mean, basically, you just... If you can go long, it's a it's an advantage. And you obviously can't go 500 pages at the paper, but uh, 
No, there's nothing different. No. And how do you compartmentalize um, negative feedback? How do you deal with uh, either uh, obnoxious comments from readers or um, peers? Well, I don't get much of um, the email stuff because we have editors that go over it all when it comes through and get rid of all the obscene stuff. Or the um, when I was at the Daily News, I remember once getting a letter that was addressed to Gail Collins, liberal bitch, and I thought, no, sir, what makes you think I will go forward with opening of this letter at this point? Right. It just seemed very strange. It was but, rude for him to call you liberal. Yes, and but. Uh, so yeah, a lot of it I don't see, and uh, you know that which I do I delete. So uh, you know, I, you can't be thinking about that stuff too much, or you'll lose your mind. Well, you're also writing in an era where being um, shock doc and being uh, a rock star, meaning that um, there are reporters who are better known for um, how they act, their mm -hmm. personality, mm -hmm. than what they say. Do you feel any pressure ever to? resort to that? Um, I mean, these are you, the Times <laughs> columnist. I'm trying to imagine all of us coming out with you know, funny hats on or something, but uh, no, that doesn't happen. Uh, and it does. that's one of the good things about the paper, too, for the reporters, is that you've got this sort of protection. So if you're writing a really serious report on a serious subject that doesn't get sort of massive readership. You're protected by the paper. The paper values that, and the paper wants you to keep doing that, so you don't feel that terrible pressure to, to do it. And Nick Kristoff and I talk about this sometimes. When Nick goes, Nick transformed the world, you know, won Pulitzer Prize for his work on Darfur, but, and risked his life many, many times. But those were f far from his most emailed and most viewed columns. Interesting. But he did it because that was the thing he thought was important, and the Times was totally there with him, sort of floating there. Nobody was ever calling up saying, Nick, you've fallen off the most emailed list because you've been writing about you know tragedy in Darfur instead of saying that George W. Bush is a weenie, which always gets really, really good pickups during that period. I didn't mean to drop, but that's fascinating because he's also um, Encourage so many young reporters and yeah. all these incentives to get uh, young people involved yeah. in serious reporting. Nick is the absolute ideal of what every, I think, young person who wants to be a foreign correspondent wants to be. I wish they could clone him for um, more men as well. Um, <laughs> in terms of sexism and, and looking at where women and, and gender issues are today, what do you think, just because you've been such a pioneer, and I want to mention when everything changed, the amazing journey of American women from 1960 to present, and America's women, 400 years of dolls, drudges, helpmates, and heroines. Thank you. Um, which are phenomenal books, and Katha Pollitt agrees with me um, <laughs> that every woman should, should read them. I wanted to ask you what you see as the major issues uh, affecting uh, women today, since you've written so thoughtfully about women over the centuries. There's two things. One is that when I get asked about women and what can we do to help women and are women, you know, falling behind and so on, and when I'm at groups and I'm speaking tours and stuff, in that sense, I do think that our greatest problem is a class problem rather than a racial or gender problem, and that you know the people who are really you know, start behind and stay behind and, you know, have no options and very little chance are the people who are born 
poor from undereducated parents, and it's not because they're women or because they're black or Hispanic or anything else. Um, that said, for women, the great ongoing humongous problem that they face is, is, is early childhood education, uh, after-school programs, just basically ways to balance their work and their kids. But again, those are class issues ultimately because I think the, the other problem with feminism today is that so much of it seems co-opted for either marketing uh, means sort of, you know, an Oprah Winfrey type, yeah. um, go women go as long as you buy my lipstick or my magazine or whatever it is I'm selling as a quote-unquote feminist product. Um, people walked away from listening to Wendy Davis buying sneakers, which is fine to, to sort of worship a superhero and, and feel empowered by that, but um, it would be even better <laughs> if more women, you know, made sure to get their voices heard the way she did. So how do you define feminism today? Feminism has always been the same. Feminism has always been about working to make sure that every woman has the opportunity to do what she wants to do to fulfill her own hopes and dreams and use her talents to the best of her capacity. And whenever you define it like that, everybody says they're in favor of it, but yet there are tons of young women who do not like the word feminism. And that's basically been true throughout history. There were only about 15 minutes when that word was popular. Normally it hasn't been. Um, there was one thing for one of my books I found from the 1920s saying that it suggested unattractive shoes. You know, but it was that's basically exactly the thing that's going on. It's always it's always been that thing. Yes, right. That's why I wear my clogs. You know, but and the the other part of that, often when I'm out talking, people will ask when women are going to get stop wearing dangerous you know shoes with huge long high heels and pointy fronts, and I say never because clearly history has shown that no matter how liberated women are, they are always going to want to wear ridiculous shoes, and that's just part of our. What are Gender. you wearing? I'm just, I'm wearing real comfortable shoes, you know. A little tiny, tiny. Monoloblonics? Yeah, nobody interesting. <laughs> Harry Schuster, I believe. Harry Schuster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you wrote eloquently in a recent um, blog with David Brooks that you have, have missed the boat on being a virgin martyr. Yes, I'm sorry about that, but it's true. Is there anything else you would like to do? <laughs> Wise. That was truly the highest calling nuns would tell us when we were being educated and I was a kid. The nuns always made it clear that the highest thing, I think for guys it was like an apostle of the church or something, but for women it was virgin martyr. That's the way you wanted to go if you really wanted to make it big in the Catholic Church. So, And that's my boat has sailed, I'm afraid, so it's not going to happen. This will be a shocking newsbreaker, and I read yes, this in deadline. <laughs> <laughs> we really broke a major news story. Um, thank you so much for your time. This was a, just a treat and a privilege. Oh, it's a pleasure. And I'm so honored to be the employee of the month. It's an honor to be speaking with you. Thank you, Gail. <laughs> Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you so much to Gail Collins. Please check her work out at NewYorkTimes.com, and you can subscribe to her column there. Thank you to Joel Arnold, who... Uh, edits this podcast together. And to all of you for listening, please subscribe to the podcast. Go to Employee of the Month show to sign up for the mailing list so you can find out about live tapings and you can also donate. All right, you better get back to work and I need to get done with work. I'm out of here.